Alrighty, good morning, everybody. It's great to be here with y'all. My name's Tim Greeno. I'm one of the pastors here at Walnut Creek, uh, and it is good to be with y'all this morning and worship Christ. Uh, for those of you who are visiting us, we want to say welcome. We always love a visitor and, and would love to uh, know how to better serve you or just connect with you as a church. So definitely stop by the Welcome Center on your way out this morning and say hello. Um, also, I wanted to say Happy Mother's Day to all of you moms. Uh, Mom, if you're watching on the live stream, Happy Mother's Day. It's great to, uh, yeah, just have moms who love Christ and moms who love their children so well. And so I just wanted to encourage you all this morning, for those of you who are moms, keep up the good work. Uh, keep praying for your kids, keep loving them, pointing them to Christ, sharing the word with them. We can have confidence and trust that God is, is using all of that. Uh, in order to really form our, our kids and form their hearts, shape their hearts, and point them to Jesus. So keep it up, and um, happy Mother's Day to you all. Hope you get some time to just enjoy the day together with family. Uh, this morning, we are going to be back in the book of Genesis, and we're picking up where we left off last week. So if you have a Bible, um, if you have a scripture journal, Definitely get it out, get it open to Genesis chapter 14. And we're going to be, like I said, picking up where we left off last week. And the beginning of Genesis chapter 14, if you remember, uh, Abraham and his nephew Lot, they're kind of caught in a major military conflict. His, Abraham's nephew Lot was captured uh, by a group of four kings. And Abraham took some men from his household, and they pursued those kings. They overtook them, and they brought back all of these possessions, and men and women and children, including Lot and all of his possessions. They rescued them all, and then we pick up the text in Genesis 14, starting in verse 17. And we'll start our time this morning just in the Word together. It says this, After Abram returned from defeating Keterleomar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, to meet Abraham, in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, also king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God Most High. He blessed Abraham, and he said, Abram is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And I give praise to God Most High, who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people, but take all the possessions for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've raised my hand in an oath to the Lord, to God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that belongs to you, so you can never say I made Abram rich. I will take nothing except for that which the servants have eaten. But as for the share of the men who came with me, Aner, Eshkol and Mamre, they can take their share. That's our text that we'll be working through together this morning. Before we jump in and study it together, we're going to take a few minutes here and pray. If you're newer with us, this is something we do pretty much every week. We just take a couple minutes at the beginning of our time. We put our heads together with the neighbor, and we pray for one another. Okay, And so we're going to do that this morning. Take two minutes here. Pray for one another. Pray uh, that our hearts would be humble and tender and teachable. I was just thinking this week, Boy, I need humility. I, I just need a, a tender heart that is willing and eager to hear from God, to be corrected, to be changed. And so we're going to pray for each other uh, to that end, and then we'll be on our way studying the Word together. Okay, so take a couple minutes here and pray, then I'll jump in and pray with all of us, and we'll be on our way. On your marks, get set, and pray.
Heavenly Father, uh, God, we, we thank you for today. We thank you for our time to worship and, and gather together under your word and in your spirit, God. Lord, we, we know today is it, it can be a bittersweet day, God, for um, those who have lost mothers or children. Lord, we um, just want to acknowledge, God, that it, it can be a bittersweet day, God, but it is also so good for us to be reminded of your sweet, faithful goodness in our lives, God. You are our wonderful, eternal, heavenly Father, God, and um, Lord, we look to you today, God, for encouragement. We look to you uh, in your word to instruct us, to give uh, words that bring life, and we pray this morning, Lord, that we would be encouraged to greater love and worship of you, God, as we study your word, and we pray it all in Jesus' holy and precious name, amen. Okay, well, about five years ago, uh, actually five years ago next month, uh, I moved over here from our downtown location of Walnut Creek uh, to pastor here full-time at the church in Windsor Heights. And at the time that that happened, uh, I, I was serving as a pastor in our downtown location, but that wasn't my day job. Uh, my day job was working full-time downtown as an actuary at a big insurance company. And as an actuary in the summer of 2018, um, I had just, the year before that, passed all of my actuarial exams. And so I was what's called a, a fellow in the Casualty Actuarial Society, an FCAS. Those are the credentials that you get as an actuary. And the credentials for an actuary, it's a pretty rigorous, uh, several-year-long process. And not that many people make it all the way through the process. Uh, but what those credentials allow you to do are basically two important things. One, uh, insurance is a highly regulated industry. And so credentialed actuaries are required to sign off for big insurance companies on the reserves that they hold and the price changes that they want to make. And so that's one thing that credentials allow you to do. But then the second thing those credentials allow you to do, uh, even more importantly, is they allow you to make a lot of money without having to work very much. It's just a nice, <laughs> easy nine-to-five job. And there's not a lot of professions better than being an actuary. Uh, it's low stress. And once you have your credentials, you're pretty much set. You get to reap the spoils of making it through their ridiculous exam process. And your credentials, they allow you to get just about any job that you would really ever want to have. And like I said, the summer of 2018, uh, I had just gotten through this several-year-long exam process. I was working about the best job a guy could ask for. I didn't have to travel. I probably worked like 30 hours a week. Uh, on a long week, uh, I had clear work-life boundaries. <laughs> no, nobody was really ever critical of me. They paid me really well. I was driving a Corolla. Um, I know. Got to lead a big team of people. People thought I was good at what I did. It was great. It was a wonderful time of life. And honestly, I think God was really honored in it. And I think the reason why God is honored in it is that the workplace is so important. And it is such an important thing that there are Christians representing Jesus in just about every profession in the world. God is honored by that. And honestly, I think God may call me back to being an actuary someday. But what happened in the summer of 2018 uh, was this. Through a lot of circumstances that I would have never scripted, uh, God brought about a need in the church for somebody to jump in here and pastor full-time at the church in Windsor Heights. And at the time, our pastoral team felt really led by the Lord that, that they should ask me and my wife to move over here and to pastor 
in the church, to leave uh, our, our church location, to leave my job, my career, my credentials behind, and to start working for the church full-time. And so when we were asked to do that, that meant we had a pretty big choice in front of us, as you can imagine. And in one sense, the decision that we had to figure out was between, like, two really different career paths, uh, two pretty different lifestyles, and two pretty different schedules. But in a lot of ways, as we prayed through it, what became very clear to both of us was that we weren't really choosing between two career paths or two lifestyles or two schedules. Uh, given you know, a lot of variables and, and the specifics of the situation, what became clear to both of us was this. It was really a choice between the world and the Lord. Do you want to follow the world? Do you want what the world has to offer? Or do you want to follow the Lord? If you want the world, you can have it. Or you can walk with God. But in this specific situation, given a number of the specific variables, it was really clear to us, you can't have both. And you've got to choose. And I believe every person is going to have times in their life when you are facing that exact same question. Very different circumstances, no doubt. The, the circumstances that, that, that we are put in in order to be brought into that situation are going to be very different. But I believe every single person is going to have times in their life when that question is staring you in the face. Do you want the world or do you want the Lord? You can't have both. So which is it? And in our passage today, that is exactly the question that is staring Abraham in the face. Okay, and we will see how Abraham responds to that question. But not only that, we're going to get into the heart of Abraham. And we'll, we'll see why he makes the choice that he does and responds to the testing of God in the way that he does. And as we get back into our passage today, the way we're going to tackle it is we're going to go back to the observations we made in our passage last week. And we're going to remember those observations. We're going to add a little bit to those observations. And then we're going to fill in that third observation. Why? Why did Abraham respond the way that he did? So we'll touch on how Abraham does not respond. We'll add to the list of how Abraham does respond. And we'll answer the question, why? Why does Abraham respond to the test the way that he does? But before we jump into that, I just want to make sure that we're caught up to the narrative here. Okay? So today we're in the second half of Genesis 14, but at the beginning of Genesis 14, what's going on is that Abraham and Lot have embarked on a very long journey together. And Abraham was called by God to a land that God promised to show him and to give him. And Lot had gone with him because in, in a lot of ways, Lot was like a son to Abraham. And that's important for us to understand. To sense the weight of the whole situation, we need to understand their relationship. Lot's father was Abraham's brother, and he had died. And, and Abraham did not have any sons of his own. And so in a lot of ways, Lot was like a son to Abraham. And they have gone together on this long journey that God has called them into. And they have settled near the Dead Sea. Abraham to the west of the Dead Sea in a place called Hebron. And Lot, to the east, on the southern part of the Dead Sea, 
in a place called Sodom, a city called Sodom. And Sodom at the time was part of a group or an alliance of five cities. And these five cities, they were aligned together underneath four bigger, stronger, faster, more powerful cities, okay? And they paid tribute to those four kings, and they served those four kings, those other four cities. And this group of five, after 12 years, they get sick of doing that, so they stop paying tribute, they rebel against the four kings. And as we arrive at Genesis chapter 14, those four kings, they're not having it. And so they show up on the doorstep of these five cities, and they're not there to negotiate, they're also not happy, and they are ready to make heads roll. And so they dominate these five cities, they ransack them, they take everything from them, men, women, children, possessions, all of it, including Lot and all of Lot's possessions because he's living in Sodom. And Abraham, he responds to this challenge, to this, this situation that tests his faith, he responds in faith, he goes out, he fights against them, he rescues his nephew Lot and all of the men and women and children who are with him and all of their possessions and he brings them all back, okay? And this is the situation that we then find ourselves in as we arrive at Genesis chapter 14, verse 17. Abraham, in the first half, he has been tested through suffering. He, he really has been tested by God in a desperate situation. And now in the second half of Genesis 14, he's going to be tested in success. And in a lot of ways, it can be easy to seek God when we're suffering, when we really have no other place to turn. But in success, oftentimes you find out what is really in the heart of a man. And that's what we're going to see in the second half of Genesis 14 today. We're going to see what's in Abraham's heart, okay? But we start first by remembering how Abraham doesn't respond in this time of testing by the Lord, both in suffering and in success, Abraham is being tested here by the Lord. And we need to first remember how Abraham does not respond to the testing of the Lord. And we said last week, Abraham, he doesn't respond in self-pity or self-justification or inaction. Abraham, he doesn't blame others. He's not a hypocrite. He's not self-righteous. He, he embraces the situation as it is unfolding in front of him. And he deals with it. He deals with the circumstances that God has brought into his life. And the fact that he doesn't give in to self-pity, this is a huge deal. Okay, I just, I just want to press into this for two seconds here. Self-pity is like an addictive drug. And Abraham, he doesn't wallow in self-pity. He, he doesn't just see how everything... He, See, it's so easy sometimes in self-pity, what we will tend to do is we'll see everything that happens in life through the lens of how it affects me and my family and what I don't like about it. But he doesn't do that. And self-pity, like I said, it, it's like an addictive drug, but it's like gospel kryptonite. Okay, it's, it's poison for the soul. And Abraham does not walk or wallow in self-pity when things don't go the way that he wants them to. Instead, notice how he does respond. We need to pay close attention to the response of Abraham. And, and the overarching theme of the response of Abraham, we can say, is faith-filled. Abraham, he responds by faith. And we'll see three different responses of Abraham. The first we saw last week in the first half, which is that he fights for and rescues Lot. He goes out and fights 
and rescues Lot. Okay? But then I want us to see two other ways that Abraham responds in faith to the circumstances that God himself has brought into the life of Abraham. And we'll see it in the back half of our passage today. And we need to catch the importance of these things. And, and it's what Abraham does after the battle that I think is just as important, if not more important, than what he does before the battle. And we're going to read our text, and then we'll draw out a couple of things that Abraham does here in response to the circumstances God himself has brought into his life. Okay, so let's just read again the second half of Genesis 14. Pay close attention to how Abraham responds. Two things, okay? After Abram returned from defeating Keter and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, also came out to meet Abraham. He brought out bread and wine, and he was a priest to God Most High. He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And I, pray, I give praise to God Most High, who has handed over your enemies to you. Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And then the king of Sodom, so now we're talking about the king of Sodom, said to Abraham, give me the people, but take the possessions for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've raised my hand in an oath to Yahweh, to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that belongs to you, so you can never say I made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the servants have eaten, but as for the share of the men who came with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, they can take their share. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to spell out the two ways that Abram responds after the battle has been won. But before we do that, we need to understand the characters that we're dealing with here, okay? There are two main people that Abraham is interacting with in this situation. The king of, uh, the king of Salem, or I'm sorry, the king of Sodom, and the king of Salem, Melchizedek, okay? Melchizedek and the king of Sodom. Now, Melchizedek is a mysterious person in the scriptures. He just kind of arrives here on the scene in Genesis 14. There's no genealogy. There, there's no mention of his birth or his death. But we do learn a decent amount about Melchizedek in a very short period of time in Genesis chapter 14. Okay? First of all, Melchizedek, king of Salem, his, ne his name Melchizedek, it literally means king of righteousness. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us later. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. So this man, Melchizedek, who shows up, no genealogy, no birth, no death, at least not recorded. We understand him to be a king of righteousness. And then king of Salem means king of peace. Salem means peace. So you have king of righteousness, king of peace. And not only that, but we know where he is a king because king of Salem also means king of Jerusalem. Salem is short for Jerusalem. So this man is king of righteousness, king of peace, king of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem at the time is not the epicenter of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel doesn't exist yet. But Melchizedek is king of righteousness, king of peace, king of Jerusalem. And not only that, but he was also a priest to God most high. He's God's king priest. He is a priest to God Most High. And he's not a priest to God Most High in, in the way that most priests were priests. Okay, so priests are priests because of their lineage. But again, Melchizedek, we don't even know his lineage. He's not a Jew because that's not a thing yet. But he is a priest by God's own choosing to Yahweh, to God Most High. 
So he's king of righteousness, king of peace, king of Jerusalem, and a priest to God most high. A a man who very clearly in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3, the author of Hebrews tells us this is a man who resembles the Son of God. He points us with great clarity ahead to Jesus Christ all the way back thousands of years before the birth of Jesus in Genesis chapter 14. It is an amazing thing. So you got Melchizedek on one hand, and then you've got the king of Sodom on the other hand. Does anybody know what Sodom means? It means burning, the king of burning. And, and we can understand why he would be the king of burning. But the city of Sodom, it is synonymous with all kinds of debauchery and wickedness and, and worldliness. And this is the man who led them into all of it. This is their king. This is the guy they follow into that debauchery. And so you've got Melchizedek on one hand, King of righteousness, king of peace, king of Jerusalem, priest to God most high, and the king of burning, debauchery, and wickedness. And these two guys, they come out to the Valley of Kings to meet Abraham after the war. After the dust has settled, Abraham's nephew Lot has been brought back and rescued, and all of these possessions and people have been saved. And this is the way that Abraham responds to these two guys first. He receives the blessing of Melchizedek, and then he gives him a tenth of everything. Okay, He, he receives this spiritual blessing of Melchizedek, and we know he receives it, because as he receives the blessing, he gives Melchizedek a tenth of all of the spoils of war, of everything that he has. Then second... He refuses, he rejects the blessing of Sodom. He he rejects the offer of worldly wealth that the king of Sodom gives to Abraham. He rejects the blessing of the king of Sodom. He receives it from God's king priest, this spiritual blessing, and he rejects the worldly blessing offered by the king of Sodom. In verse 21, the king of Sodom, he comes to Abraham and he says, I have raped, I'm sorry, give me the people, but take the possessions for yourself. King of Sodom comes to Abraham after the battle, all these people and spoils have been brought back. He says, hey, Abraham, here's the deal. I'll take the people. You can have all the possessions, all of the wealth. And what he's offering Abraham, it is unimaginable wealth. These four kings who Abraham defeated in order to bring back Lot and the men and women and children with him and all of the possessions, those four kings, they had utterly decimated like all of the known world at the time. Okay? They had gone from place to place to place, city after city, destroying and ransacking All these places on their way to the group of five cities, including Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, so they they, they don't just have the riches of Sodom or the riches of Gomorrah or the five cities that they're allied with. They have the riches of city after city after city. And now all of that wealth, unimaginable wealth, is being offered to Abraham by the king of Sodom. He says, hey, I'll take the people. You can have literally all of the possessions. It's all yours. And Abraham looks at him 
and he looks at this mountain of unimaginable wealth, and he says, no, I won't take an ounce of it. He had no problem receiving God's spiritual blessing from God's king priest, but he utterly rejects the worldly blessing of the king of Sodom and all of the wealth that you could ever possibly imagine. Okay, and in terms of just the actual response of, of Abraham, this is what it is. He, he fights, he goes out and fights and rescues Lot. He receives a wonderful spiritual blessing from Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of priests, God's priest. And then he rejects all the wealth of the world from the king of Sodom. And that response, I think it's helpful for us to see, but until we get into the heart of it and understand the motive, I would say that response doesn't really help us all that much. Because what are we supposed to do with that? Like, if we don't understand the heart of, of the issue and what's really going on here, how do we relate to that? Like, have you ever been offered the wealth of 12 cities? <laughs> no, me neither, okay? And I'm unlikely to be offered that kind of unimaginable wealth. So how do we relate, and how do we apply this in our lives? Well, it starts with understanding the heart of Abraham. What is going on inside of him that allows him to receive the spiritual blessing of God's king priest and utterly reject all of the wealth of the world? And there's something incredibly important to learn about the response of Abraham that affects you and that affects me, okay? And it has to do with his motives. Why does Abraham respond the way that he does? This is observation number three from our passage. Notice why. Notice why Abraham responds the way he does. And I think we could talk actually for a long time about Abraham's love for Lot. We could. And it would be worth our time. Okay? I, I think Abraham's love for Lot, no doubt, influenced his actions throughout this whole time. His willingness to just put his own life in harm's way to go out and rescue his nephew. There is such a Christ-like love in Abraham for Lot. So much we could learn from that. Just the way even that Lot clearly does not deserve to be rescued. And yet Abraham, it's like just impulsively, instinctively, because of the love that he has, he's compelled to action. He's compelled to go and to put himself in harm's way in order to rescue Lot. Sweet picture of the love of Christ. We could talk about that for a long time. And we could also talk about Abraham's love for Melchizedek, for God's king priest, and that would be worth our time too. And Melchizedek is a man who so clearly points us to Jesus, and it, it is incredible to see how Abraham, he, he loves God's king's, king priest. He, he just, he respects him, he honors him, he, he desires his glory. He gives a tenth of everything without even being asked. It's like, hey, what else do you want? And we could talk for a long time, I think, about how this points us to Christ. A love for Christ, a love for God's king priest. If you want to dig into it more this week, you could go back to Hebrews chapter 7. You could go back to our Hebrews message series from last year and get into uh, that message from Hebrews chapter 7. But what I really want us to notice this morning is this. Why, why is it that Abraham responds the way that he does as all of these circumstances unfold according to God's plan. And I would say this, it is because Abraham, more than anything else, he is moved by a love for God's glory and a love for God himself. He is moved by a 
genuine, compelling love for God himself. That's what's tucked into his heart. And I want you to pay close attention to the last few verses of our passage. In verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people. Hey, I'll take, I'll take the people. But you can take the possessions for yourself. You know, as an introvert, that's like a tantalizing offer. It's like, boy, that sounds kind of nice. Give me the people. You take all of the possessions, all of the wealth that you could ever imagine. Just think about what that would do for your life. You know, if you're anything like me, you have stress in your life related to bills, mortgages, car problems, tuition, And this is like an end to all of those problems guaranteed for the rest of your life and your kids' lives and their kids and their kids and their kids and every generation after that. And says, hey, it's all yours. You take it. But Abraham, he knows there's a choice here. And the reason that there's a choice here is because Abraham has actually taken an oath before God that he would take nothing from the king of Sodom, and probably from any other king as well. In verse 22, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to the Lord, to Yahweh, to God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that belongs to you. See, you can never say, I made Abram rich. See, Abraham had made an oath that he would take nothing. And so before the Lord... Abraham knows, I have a choice here. And, and the choice in front of him, it's not a choice between endless riches and far less riches. Okay? Abraham has a choice. He can either fulfill his vow and walk with the Lord. He can have God himself. Or he can have the world. But he cannot have both. It is one or the other. The choice, it's again, it's not between riches and poverty. That's not how Abraham is thinking about this choice. The choice is not between like riches now or riches later. That's not how Abraham is seeing this. What it all boils down to is this you can have everything that you could possibly dream of. You can have security, comfort, pleasure, no debt, no bills, no problems. Or you can have the Lord. But you can't have both. You choose. And every single one of us will be put to that same test. You will. If you haven't, you will. Different circumstances, no doubt, but the same test. And no one can make that choice for you. Your spouse can't. Your parents can't. That choice will be put in front of you. And you choose. Do you want God and everything that the Lord comes with? Suffering and blessing. Criticism and comfort. 
Do you, do you just want to walk with the Lord? Or do you actually want the world? It's your choice. And here's how Abraham responds to that very question in front of him. I will take nothing. I'll take nothing. Except what the servants have eaten. And as for the share of the men who came with me, Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre, they can take their share. He says, I'm not making this choice for anybody else. The men who have come with me, they can make their choice. What, what do they want to do? But as for me, I will take nothing that the world has to offer because I have made my choice. I will walk with God. I will embrace the Lord and everything that that comes with. Suffering and blessing, criticism and comfort, joy and hardship, whatever it is, I choose Christ. I choose the Lord. I'm choosing Yahweh, God Most High. I've made an oath and I'm going to walk with him. And you see, this situation, Abraham is being tested in success, and it so clearly reveals what sits in the heart of Abraham. You know, in suffering, when everything's been taken away, just like when Lot was taken away, and and all of Abraham's world is threatened with war, like, in suffering, everybody cries out to God. That's just what we do. We don't have any options. We don't know what else to do. I mean, even atheists cry out to God. When everything is taken away and there, there's great suffering and there's nothing else that you can even think of to do. You know, if you've ever heard people uh, retell near-death experiences, it's so funny. Like, regardless of people's religious beliefs outside of that one moment, it's like in that moment, if people are honest, they will express like, yeah, I just prayed. I didn't know what else to do. I, I just called out to God. And in suffering, that's what we do. What else would we do? But what happens when everything is restored? And you have everything you could ever need or want right in front of you. You have all of your needs met. Your prayers are answered. The dust settles. Do you still want God? Are you still desperate for God? Is it God you want or is it just a change of circumstances? It's easy to call out to God when we suffer. But is it God you want or is it just a change of circumstances? Because you see, that is not love for God. That is loving the world and realizing you need God to get it. And that is not what moved Abraham. And we see it so clearly when the world is offered to him. And all he has to do is say yes. But he knows. But then I'll lose God. Then I don't get to walk with God. And it is love for God himself that moved and compelled Abraham to reject the blessing of God the worldly blessing of the king of Sodom, and to receive the spiritual blessing of Melchizedek. And if we're going to glorify God with our lives, that is exactly what we need. We need a love for God himself that moves us, that leads us, that shapes us, that guides us. And so the question is this, how do we grow that kind of heart? Well, that sounds nice, but how do we grow that kind of love for God? And this is where we'll close this morning.
and it's going to be our practical application for today. And it comes right out of the Word, okay? It comes right out of the Word of God, but it comes to us in Genesis chapter 13. Before all of this plays out, there's something that happens before all of this plays out that develops and shapes and transforms the heart of Abraham. So in this time of testing, what was tucked into the heart is revealed and exposed, okay? In Genesis chapter 13, and I want you to remember, Genesis 12, Abraham gets a big old F for how he responds in Egypt, okay? Something happened, something changed, what is it? Genesis 13, verse 18. So Abram, he moved his tent, and he went to live near the oaks of Mamre of Hebron. He settles in Hebron, west of the Dead Sea, in the Promised Land, and he built an altar to the Lord. That is not a footnote. That's the whole story. You know what changed the heart of Abraham? How was he able to walk in love for God? How, how is it that he could just give up the whole world, all of that wealth, just to walk in faithfulness with, with God? Abraham was not a hero. We will see that over and over again in Genesis. Abraham was not a hero. But love for God, that is what worship does to the human heart. When we worship God, it changes us from the inside out. Abraham was a man who worshipped God. He built an altar and he worshipped God. And his heart was changed and transformed. No one made him do it. He was a man who built an altar and worshiped God. And worship changes us. Genuine worship transforms the heart. And without it, our hearts, they are prone to grow cold and they are prone to wander towards the, the riches of the world, towards idols and the love of the world. And as we close today, here's our practical application we need to worship the Lord. We need to worship God. We need to worship Jesus. You know, two weeks ago, our practical application was to joyfully worship Jesus. And, and I'm all about keeping things fresh, changing it up. But I, I'll just tell you, I think God is pressing us as a church to grow in worship. I think God is pressing us as a church to grow in worship. And we should not ignore him. God is pressing into us. And we need to press into him. And grow in worship. Worship him. I'll just say it again today. Joyful worship of Jesus is what changes human hearts. It is the joyful worship of Christ that transforms us. That transcends our circumstances. As we behold the glory of God, remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, as we behold the glory of God, we worship him. We, as looking in a mirror, we see the, the, the glory of Jesus and we're being transformed into this very same image from glory to glory. It is the worship of our glorious Savior that transforms our human hearts into the image of Christ like no one else in the world. And so let's focus this week. Let's press in this week. 
You know, two weeks ago, I encouraged you, I exhorted you to joyfully worship Jesus, and that is wonderful. But I know how short-lived it can be for us to take something from the Word of God and apply it into our lives. And I just want to tell you again, we need to worship Christ. So let's press in this week to worship Christ, and let's especially focus as we close our time together this morning on the worship of Christ. To worship Him together in communion at the Lord's table to worship him together in prayer, to worship him together in his song, to sing as those who are able to see because the veil has been lifted, the glory of our Lord Jesus. Let's do that together this morning. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you are glorious. God, it shouldn't be a chore. It shouldn't be a a tall order for us to, to stand and to worship you at the top of our lungs, Lord. Because we can see, we we have the veil lifted, God. By your grace, you have brought us into your glory and your kingdom, your salvation. Lord, I pray that we would worship you, not just this morning, God, but certainly this morning as we are together. What a joy it is to sing with your people and to pray with your people, God. We pray that our hearts would, would, would move our mouths, God, to worship you as you deserve, God. You have been so faithful and good and kind to us, Lord. Help us to worship you this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name.